Um, I'm going to start a little bit differently today. We've obviously we're in our series the way, and normally, uh, in our um, in when I'm delivering a message, I often start with a with a story or um, kind of a joke, even sometimes, or you know, to try and get in. But today, I'm going to start with some scripture. Wow, yeah, come on, come on. Uh, We're going to start with a Bible passage, and if you have your Bibles, and feel free to turn to uh, 1 John, so that's John's first letter. I'm going to have it on the screen anyway, so uh, you don't need to have your Bibles. And so 1 John chapter 4, reading from verse 7, it's quite a lengthy uh, bit of of Bible. I like a bit of Bible. So uh, 1 John 4 from verse 7, and it says this, Dear friends, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. I don't know where that word's gone. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God, must also love their brother and sister. So, guess what I'm talking about today? Love. Love, right. So, the way of love. Um, Last week, we were looking at the way through fear. If you remember what we we talked about, um, discovering that fear is often the biggest barrier for us as we journey on this way as a Christian, as we are disciples of Jesus. There is a way that we're on, and fear is a huge barrier for us in this. And we looked at uh, the fact that Jesus has called us to a life of courage, of stepping out, a life that looks fear in the eye and says, I'm not going to let you rob me of my destiny. I'm not going to let you rob me of my hopes and my dreams and my God-given purpose and the excitement of stepping into uh, new things. We talked about how uh, fear and courage, they're connected, but they're not opposites. They're not opposites. Um, Courage is a decision. Fear is an emotion. There isn't a a scale with fear at one end and the courage at the other, and we're trying to move our way across the scale to get to courage. That's not how it works, because they both exist at the same time. You can't have courage if you haven't got fear. And if you don't have fear, then you don't need courage. And it's, it's kind of, I've been thinking about this a lot the last few weeks, and it's tricky 
It's a tricky concept to grasp. This whole idea of fear and courage. And when there is a Bible that says, a passage in the Bible that says, do not fear, it often goes hand in hand with have courage, which kind of, as somebody who thinks about these things, it gives me a problem because I think, well, I know that when there's fear in me, that's when I need courage in order to step out. And if I don't have fear, then I, I don't need courage. So the issue then isn't the fear. The issue is it's, it's the resulting action of that fear. It's what fear is making me doing, making me do. And the, it's when we allow fear to determine our course that we've got an issue, right? And, and uh, it's when we uh, read in scripture, I was afraid, so I... We read that a few times. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam says, doesn't he? He says, I was afraid, so I hid. And he hides from God. Or in the parable of the talents we looked at last week, I was afraid, so I buried what you'd given me. It's when we read, I was afraid, so when we let the afraid turn into a so I, that we have an issue. What God wants us to say is, like David in the Psalms, um, no, I haven't got it. It's not there. No, I don't have it. David in the Psalms says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That's what God wants us to do. He says, I am afraid, so I will trust you. I will have courage. I will step out and I will act out of courage, not out of fear. Last Sunday, at the end of my message, um, Charlotte McDermott came up to me. With a, she said, can I ask you a question? Uh, which is always great. Um, so I said, yeah, yeah, uh, feel free to ask me a question. Um, and she said to me, how does fear and courage fit into the idea of having perfect peace about a decision? Doesn't having peace imply that there's no fear? And it's a great question. It's the right question. And I was really pleased that she asked me because it, it meant that somebody was listening. Um, and you should never take, by the way, you should never take what I say as absolute truth. You should always check. You should test whatever you read. Test with what you know about scripture. Test with what we read in the Bible um, in order to make sure that what I'm saying is right. And, and it's why we kind of gather in small groups. And it's why we kind of get, start picking up, pulling at the threads of the Sunday message in our small group on a Wednesday. Because if it's true it will stand up to scrutiny. So we like to do that. So when we're making a big life decision, how do these th two things marry up? The idea that we can have perfect peace, peace from God about the decision, and also the fact that we do need courage to step out. Now, I kind of, when, she, when Charlotte asked me this, I kind of thought about it in, in my own context and in our life, through my life, we've, we've, we've made many decisions this way. When we've, got a, we've come to a crossroads, we know there's a big decision to make. Uh, we will, what we will do is we will make a decision one way or the other. We don't know which way is right. And then we will sit with it for a little while and we'll say, okay, well, do I have peace about this decision? And if we do, great, we just move forward in that. And if we don't, we're like, okay, well, let's kind of reverse that decision and let's, let's go a different path because we want to have peace about the decision. And I think what we need to have peace about is the rightness and wrongness about a decision because sometimes there's the right path to take. Um, 
But I also know that even if I have God's peace about a decision, if I feel like it's the right decision, I often still need courage to step into that decision. Even though I know it's right, there is still, I guess, fear, so to speak. There will be doubts and questions about where that decision will lead. Because I think our peace can be disturbed, not just by whether the decision is right or wrong, but about the cost of the decision. Does this make sense? Sometimes there's a cost involved, even though it's right. Um, So if I was to say, okay, well, I've decided, or I feel like God is telling me to send Kev to the Caribbean on a holiday. Okay, and I feel like it's the right decision. And so, and and, and I make the decision. But then there's something in me that will start to count the cost of the decision. And so I will have peace that it's the right decision. But then I need courage to follow. I think, okay, well, how is this going to affect me and my family and, and the other things? And, and then I need courage to step into that. And it reminded me of actually a Bible example of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was absolutely clear about his purpose, wasn't he? He, he, he had perfect communion with the Father. And he absolutely knew. He'd already told his disciples he knew what to expect. But then he travels to the garden with his disciples and he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So there is peace about the rightness of the decision and there's also anguish about the cost of the decision. And he says, my father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So there's peace and there's anguish and there's courage needed, not my will, but your will. Father, all mixed together, all at the same time. Peace, having peace about a decision doesn't necessarily mean we just get to skip along the way as if we haven't got a care in the world. We still need courage. It often involves us doing what the Bible calls uh, setting our faces like flint. I don't know if you've ever heard that or read that in scripture. There's a couple of passages where it talks about setting your face like flint. And what it means is it means you're, you're confident you're walking the right path, but you're expecting opposition on that path. And you've got to stand strong in the face of the, of the difficulties. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I love the question from Charlotte, and, and, and I kind of spoke to her briefly about it. Um, now, we ended last week's message by saying that courage isn't the antidote to fear. They exist at the same time. But that there is something that is an antidote. And we've just read this whole passage by uh, John, the disciple who Jesus loves. That's what he calls himself. Um, and much of his writing, if you read John's gospel or if you read his letters, uh, he talks about this idea of love. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for each other. It's kind of his life's message was about the love of God. And it's, it's, a, it's a very different understanding to the idea of love than the world has. The world's way with love is very different to God's way of love. And so we've just read in that uh, scripture there in the middle, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Now I heard a a story, a true story, uh, about a lady who was getting married and, and she was anxious. 
She was nervous. Obviously, she knew it was the right decision, I guess. She was uh, looking forward to the wedding, but she was anxious about it. And the vicar, who saw that, she was, saw, that, saw that she was anxious, thought to himself, I know, I'm going to use this scripture in the service to help her to calm down. And so uh, he, he, he prepared the verse, 1 John 4, 18, and he gave it to the best man to read at the start of the wedding service. But the best man, he wasn't a churchgoer, and he didn't realize that there were letters from John and the gospel of John. And so he read, instead of reading 1 John 4, 18, he read John 4, 18. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have <laughs> is not your husband. True story, apparently. I don't know if she felt calm after that or whether. Um, so what does this actually mean? What does it mean that perfect love drives out fear? If we can understand this, this would be amazing, right? To understand how to get to this place where there is no fear, where perfect love has driven out fear. Because it turns out that the, the, the measure, the scale, is not fear and courage, but it's fear and love. In fact, it's actually, to be specific, it's fear and it's perfect love. So what is this? What is this perfect love that drives out fear? How do we tap into it? Now, over the last few weeks, as I've been preparing for this, I've been reading all sorts of biblical commentaries and commentators, giving their view on this matter. And if I'm honest, actually, I've really wrestled with this. And Fru will kind of confirm, I've wrestled with this over the last couple of weeks. This idea, trying to work out what it means, knowing what I know about fear and needing courage, what is this perfect love that means that will, that will drive away fear? And I think I've struggled with it because I've been trying to make it one thing. I've been trying to make it one thing because I, I know you're a simple lot and one thing, you know, to have a message that's one thing is far, actually it's not for you guys, it's for me, I like one thing. Okay, if I can get you to say, do this one thing, then it works. But actually, I wrote this message like four times before I realized, actually, this is not one thing. I actually think it's three things. Perfect love is three things. It's a three-part process. It comes in three stages. And we're going to be using that scripture that we read at the beginning to help us. So the first stage of perfect love is, number one, is God's love for us. This has to be our starting point. God loves me. God loves me with an incredible, amazing, otherworldly love. Before anything else, before I have earned anything, before I deserve anything, God loves me. Not just with words, but in actions. What did we read in that scripture? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he demonstrated it. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God's love is perfect because he is perfect love. Paul writing to the Romans says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not just some strange, intangible feeling that God has for us. It's a definite, tangible, specific, hard as nails thing. God loves us and so God loves us, and so he did something. He sent his son 
to become the atoning sacrifice for us. He sent his son to die for our sins. Now, Jesus told a story that I think really sums up this idea of, of, of perfect love. And it's the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure we're all uh, familiar with it. And we usually, in this parable, we focus on the son's journey away from the home to his own life and then back again. But actually, I think this story is much, much, much more about the father. I think I'd, ra- I'd rather call this the parable of the loving father. So the son says to the father, can I have my inheritance? And for those people who were listening to Jesus in that time, in that place, they would have read a lot into, into the son asking for his inheritance. It's like the son was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you didn't exist. I wish you weren't here. I want you to give, my, give me money so I can live the life that I want to live, to live life my way. I don't want you kind of interfering in my life. I want you to give me my money, but I can't do it. And I think this is, a, this is a picture of the world's kind of response to God. They kind of wish that God didn't exist. And so they live and they talk in such a way as if he doesn't, because if he does exist, it gives them a real problem about how they live their life, about the way that they live. But if he doesn't, if he thinks, oh, he doesn't exist, I can do what I want, then it kind of eases their conscience almost. And it's like they say, I wish you were dead. I wish you didn't exist. I want to live my way, forgetting the fact that they're living their way with the resources that they've been given by God, with the talent and resources and, and the, the strength, all from God. And so the father, he goes through this pain of his son asking for money, saying, I wish you were dead. He watches his son walk down a path that he knows is a disastrous path. And after some time, we read in the, uh, in the parable that the son obviously squanders everything and he, he's there f- eating the pig's swill. And he comes, the Bible says he comes to his senses. He realizes he's made a mistake. And then uh, we read this. He says, I will set out and go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up. And went to his father. The son was confident in a way that he could return to the father, but still he's operating under his own terms. He's saying, I'm going to come back to the father, but it's in my terms. I'll come back as a slave. I'll work it. And I think, again, this is what we often do. We say, I know I can come back to the father, but I know I'm going to earn. I'm going to earn his love. I'm going to earn my salvation by doing all these things for him. I'm going to become his servant and do all these things so I know that he's not giving me something for nothing. And maybe we come to God thinking that he's doing us a favor that we have to reciprocate. Instead of realizing we're not coming to that person, we're coming to perfect love. We're coming to perfect love. Because while while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And actually this, 
I've highlighted this bit. This just stood out to me. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. When we place God in this position of the father, this is the crucifixion. This is Jesus dying on the cross. The father running to his son, throwing his arms around him and kissing him is Jesus becoming the sacrifice for our sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still a long way off, while we were still far from God, he made the journey towards us and did everything necessary for us to have a relationship with him. And the, and the son's got his speech prepared. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I will come and be your slave. And what does the father do? He's seen him in the distance. He hoists up his skirt and he runs down the stairs. He bursts out the door. He runs down the front drive, out the gate, across the field where he's seen his son walking. And he grabs him and he holds him and he kisses him. This is perfect love. This is the Father chasing after us. This is the first stage of perfect love. God's love for us. The second stage is perfect love is our love for God. This can only follow once we've really grasped, understood and agreed with the first stage. We've really got to get, understand God's love for us before we'll have an, make a go of us truly loving God. Again, what did we read in the passage? We love because he first loved us in verse 19. We love God because of his perfect love for us. We love him. He puts his love into us. Not that we are uh, kind of vessels, that, static vessels, but that we become conduits of that love. And we return that love back to him. There was a moment recorded in the Gospels when an expert in the law comes to Jesus in order to test him. And he asks this question. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Do you notice how Jesus doesn't respond? He doesn't say, oh, wow, that's a great question. Let me have a think for a moment and see if I can work out what the greatest commandment is. He's there straight away. He knows. And I think the expert in the religious law knows as well. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, the greatest commandment is um, don't commit adultery, don't murder. Obviously, don't murder. You don't want to kill people. He said, no, no, no. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first and the greatest command. And what does this look like? Well, I think we... we we love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength by trusting him, by being obedient to him. He says that this command sums up all the laws and the prophets. If we do this one thing, we don't have to remember all those other laws and all those other commands because this one thing will, will kind of will supersede those things. And that means that those things will happen anyway. And we love God by being obedient to him, by not allowing fear to drive us by stepping out in courage in obedience. Again, back to John, 1 John 2. Whoever says, if I, I, sorry, whoever says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. 
But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And that word complete is this Greek word teleo, which is the same uh, word as perfect. So when we read perfect love casts out fear, it means complete love. And he's saying uh, the love is made complete in us when we love for God by doing what he tells us to do, by knowing what's in the Bible, by being obedient to his words and listening to the Holy Spirit's prompting. That's how we love God. Which leads us on to uh, the third way, the third stage. Perfect love is our love for people. So it's God's love for us. We have to get that first, which leads to our love for God, which leads to our love for other people. It follows on from stage one and two. When we have understood and accepted, truly accepted uh, the first one, we can then in turn love God by being obedient to his word, obedient to his will, by trusting him, and then we demonstrate that further by loving the people around us. Uh, we read in that passage, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So again, this is the idea of perfect love. God's love is perfected as we love one another. Since God so loved us. Or another translation of this would be, in the same way that God loved us, we also ought to love one another. In what way did God love us? We've already looked at it. We know that uh, he sent his son to die. And in fact, the previous verse to this um, actually says, uh, this is love that God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he says, God sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins, Therefore, that's the way that God loved us. So we should also love each other in the same way by laying it down our lives for other people, to put others first, to deny ourselves. This is the way. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians all about the way that we know uh, how you know, we recognize love. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's a well-known passage, isn't it? If anybody's ever been to a wedding, you would have seen this passage or heard this passage. But it's a great list. And then I look at that list and go... Really, do I do that? Am I confident that I'm not easily angered? That I never boast? That I'm not proud? We've got to have the love of God in us. The first stage, love, the love of God for us. The second stage, our love for God, our trust for him. And then the third stage, our love for one another. And then going back to that question that the expert in the law asked Jesus when he said, um, what is the greatest, greatest commandment? We know that he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The direct translation of this would be the second is the same as the first. The second is 
is, uh, is as the first. When you love God, you love people. You can't do one without the other. You can't love people without loving God. You can't love God by, without loving people. They're both the same thing. It's a direct result of loving God. Again, back to our passage. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen can't love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this is where we've arrived then. Perfect love in three parts. God's love for us. Our love for God. And then our love for each other. And when we reach this conclusion perfectly when we arrive at this state then we arrive at this place where perfect love drives out it casts out it, it's like that word drives it's like picks up by the scruff of the neck and throws it out the door perfect love drives out fear how can fear have any control over us when we do these things just to finish let me just break down those three things again in this way if I live my life confident in God's love, I can be confident in his promises. I can be confident that like the prodigal son, wherever I've ended up, wherever I've strayed to, that God is waiting for me and he's done everything necessary for me to come back to him. His love for me is so perfect that despite me, he loves me. And my trust in that love means I am confident in his plan. So whatever, whatever befalls me, whatever trouble comes against me, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear nothing because of his love for me. His rod and staff comfort me. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing, when I love God, when, when I can love, I can, I can accept his love and I can love him back, meaning that I am obedient to him, meaning that I trust his path, meaning that whatever happens, in fact, Fru and I were talking yesterday morning about, we've got a, a new, you know, we're foster carers, we've got a new foster placement coming tomorrow, and we were talking about the previous three or four foster placements, which haven't gone very well. They've been really, really really tricky but actually looking back we can see God's hand on all of those things and actually there was such good things that came out of every single one of them we counted them yesterday well this came out of it this came out of it this came out of it we can trust that God was working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose if we can love God in that way we can trust that he's got us what have we got to fear? So somebody said that hindsight is 2020 vision. When you look back, you can see perfectly. But actually, hindsight gives us foresight. It means that we can walk into whatever he's got for us, confident. What can fear do when we've got a God like that who can turn things around? Perfect love means no fear. And then the third way, my love for people, our love for people. If I'm laying down my life for them, guess what? They have no power over me. When you lay down your life for somebody, when it's unconditional love, they lose any power of, of causing you harm. 
Because your love is unconditional. Your love is not determined on whether they treat you good or whether they treat you bad. What have I got to fear from them? The psalmist said it, the Lord is with me, of whom shall I be afraid? What can man do to me? Perfect love, no fear. And finally, remember what Paul said uh, to the church in Rome. He said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing, nothing you can think of, nothing you can do, nothing you can say that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God has done everything necessary to make that love real and tangible for us. And this is the way. I actually think this is probably the most important element of the way. As life as, as Christian, there's so many times where it's, the Bible says, above all, put on love, or the greatest of these is love. Whatever we think is the right thing to do, whatever we think the right, right way to act is, however we think the way should look, this is the most important, understanding God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another.